Okay. Good afternoon and welcome to the Middle East Forums webinar and podcast series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forum's Israel office, join us here each Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. Now, with no further ado, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening from Israel. Um, we saw something unprecedented this week, something that a lot of people, uh, let's say in Israel, especially on the right, the center-right of law called for, there was cooperation between the opposition and the coalition on uh, an issue of significance on the citizenship law, which is uh, otherwise known as the family reunification law. We've talked about it in the past. Basically, it was a law that was passed at the height of the second intifada in 2003, um, when there were suicide attacks uh, you know, going on uh, with regular frequency. And basically the law stated uh, that um, the, the law in Israel is if an Israeli citizen marries uh, a foreign citizen, that's, uh, that uh, foreigner then can apply and gain Israeli citizenship. What uh, some were afraid of, and uh, statistically they showed that it does happen, is some were using this law uh, to bring in uh, Palestinians who would then marry uh, Israeli citizens, and some, obviously a very small minority, uh, were committing suicide uh, attacks or terrorist attacks or being involved in terrorist attacks. So on the advice of the security forces, it was decided that um, uh, Palestinians wouldn't get uh, automatic uh, citizenship. Uh, it wasn't a law that was uh, passed uh, for good, I think maybe because of uh, Supreme Court uh, challenges. Uh, it was a law that was passed that needed to basically be reintroduced and passed every year. And as we know, it was passed every year until this government. Um, as we know, the government has uh, a challenge. It has the far left to uh, pretty much the far right or the right, the strong right, let's say. And it includes uh, uh, an Islamist party, an uh, Arab Israeli party called Ram. Um, so they weren't really able to come to a solution on this issue. And the opposition, which is largely made up, almost overwhelmingly made up of right wing. Uh, parties, or uh, at least and the ultra-Orthodox parties, which have no problem with this law, uh, they refuse to support it, which means that every attempt by Interior Minister Ela Shaked up until now uh, fell. Uh, it didn't get the necessary uh, support, and the opposition would uh, uh, taunt uh, the coalition with the failure of being able to pass this. Um, it is a law which, as, as I said before, uh, has overwhelming support. People say the supporters in 90 or maybe even something close to 100. If you look at it, the only parties that are really against it are Ram uh, Meretz, which is the extreme left uh, party of uh, Nitzan Horowitz, and obviously the, uh, the joint Arab list. And together that is less than 20 seats. So we, we are talking about, uh, uh, there's also a few in Labour, uh, a, a small minority in Labour who would support it. So we're, we're talking about close to 100, or at least in the late 90s. Um, so there was really no reason apart from politics that got in the way of uh, the passage of what uh, all the security forces said was a necessary law. Necessary law. Uh, there'd been a lot of negotiations. 
the game was always the opposition wanted to embarrass the, co the coalition, but at the end of the day, they also understand that this is a law that needed to be passed. So it was a sort of, you know, what they could each get out of it. Uh, what happened was is Ayla Shaked put up a, a, a law, as I said, that was voted down. Um, and on the opposition, an almost identical bill was presented by Simcha Reutemann uh, of the uh, Religious Zionist Party, the far-right party of uh, Petzalos Motrich. Um, so what actually happened in the end and led to Monday's vote was that there was negotiations between the right and the center of the coalition and the opposition parties, obviously minus the joint Arab list, to try and find a compromise, a way out of this. And what was understood is that um, uh, they would basically vote for both laws. This isn't uncommon uh, in the Knesset. There are sometimes competing laws uh, which are put up and if both pass, what usually happens is there's some negotiations and they're basically put into one law uh, to, uh, sort of together. They're co-signed by uh, the presenters of the two laws into one law. That usually happens after the passage uh, of the first reading, it goes back into the committee stage and usually uh, there's a compromise and the law is somewhere in the middle of their identical laws and they just become sort of one law co-signed. So what was agreed is they would um, uh, vote for both laws, the, as I said, pretty much everyone in the coalition and most of the opposition. Uh, in the end, the joint Arab list in the opposition decided to add, and I'm sure that this was uh, not a surprise and this was probably negotiated with the leader of the opposition to add uh, an element to the law that it would also be a, a vote of no confidence. So suddenly at the last minute, the Likud uh, and the religious parties couldn't vote for Eilat Shaked's law, uh, but it still passed because they didn't vote against it. Uh, so it passed something like, I think it was 44 to five, uh, the five being the joint Arab list and the 44 being uh, the center and the right wing elements of the coalition. So it passed. Uh, Simcha Rodman's uh, law passed, I think, uh, something like in the in the 70s uh, against the very small minority. Meritz and Ram uh, decided they couldn't vote on a no confidence uh, bill, but I believe that they did vote against Simcha Rodman as an opposition bill. But both bills basically uh, passed very, very comfortably. Uh, so this certainly was uh, a rare moment of compromise, of coordination, of cooperation uh, for what was considered, as I said, uh, a very important uh, law. It's something when it was at the um, legislative, um, uh, at the, uh, uh, the government committee on legislation, um, you know, the members, the heads of the Shin Bet came in, uh, it's the uh, internal security agency, and basically said that this is a, a very important law for security reasons, and we uh, generally believe that uh, it should be supported by all. Uh, that certainly swayed a lot of people. There was a debate within the coalition uh, whether there would be uh, freedom to vote according to conscience. Uh, that was something that was objected to by Benny Gantz's uh, Blue and White Party. They believe in a coalition like this, there shouldn't be uh, uh, votes on freedom of conscience because basically then everyone will vote according to ideology and it will be hard to uh, vote things through. Usually what happens when a law has been voted on by the government committee on legislation, then uh, all government members, uh, members of the coalition are bound by that. Um, but if you allow everyone to vote as they want, then no one is bound by it, which means that in the future, uh, other parties could demand that. Uh, so Benny Gantz 
some would argue is correct in that, that uh, they didn't want to start a precedent. We'll see what happens. Uh, Merits uh, and Ram less so, at least not from Mansour Abbas, but Merits uh, have threatened consequences uh, to the passage of this law. They don't believe it's a sound law. They believe it's a quote unquote racist law. It, uh, uh, you know, sort of picks out Palestinians amongst all nationalities. Um, and they certainly weren't supportive of this. It remains to be seen what the consequences are. Um, part of it may just be playing to their gallery that they have to be seen as opposing it. They have to come out strong. But whether there will be severe con uh, consequences, I doubt. I don't think this is going to be something that breaks apart the coalition because it's still too early. Uh, at the moment, uh, the focus is on trying to pass the next two-year budget in May. Uh, and at the moment, you know, a lot of, pretty much every party in the coalition hasn't been able to make great inroads uh, according to any poll. So to leave now, to break up the coalition now, there's still the worry that Netanyahu is still a member of the opposition. Uh, there's no uh, plea bargain deal on the table. There's no even suggestion that there will be. Um, so the government remains intact and the government, each party needs uh, successes and achievements before it goes to uh, the next election. So I don't believe that this will break apart the coalition, but it does show that there is arguably a level of maturity on both sides, the coalition and opposition, that on issues like this, which are considered national security, there is at least a precedent now on the table how they can work together. So I think that is a good sign. Uh, moving forward, it remains to be seen how often that will be used because today, Wednesday is another uh, Knesset day. I was there earlier. And we basically went back to uh, coalition opposition, even when you know we, we saw the opposition trying to embarrass the coalition once more by trying to uh, uh, pass a law uh, which would um, uh, extend electricity and other amenities to what's called the young settlements. In other words, uh, you know, not legal settlements, uh, uh, but basically at the moment they don't have electricity or officially they're not linked up to the electricity grid. So it was, a, it was an opposition again, going back to the previous rules of the opposition trying to embarrass the right wing uh, elements in the coalition. It actually came down to a 50-50 split, uh, but that means a law doesn't pass when it's a tie. Uh, so basically after Monday's sort of ray of hope, we're back to, you know, the positions that they were, that's not a great shock. Um, but again, there is that ray of light that perhaps on certain issues, the coalition and opposition can work together. And at the moment, uh, the elements which are unhappy about that law have not taken any great measures as of yet uh, to sort of punish the right wing uh, members. The big news of this week uh, was what's been now termed as the NSO or the police hacking scandal. Uh, Calculist, a major financial publication in Israel, released a report which said that the police has uh, did, at least uh, uh, over the last few years, has tried to hack uh, phones of 26 people. Uh, it's from uh, CEOs or uh, director generals of uh, government ministries to media um, uh, figures to even members of the Netanyahu family. And which was the most striking and what caused the most upheaval, uh, some of the uh, state's witnesses against Netanyahu. And as we know, the Netanyahu trial is ongoing, uh, checks into that. Uh, there's been a number of checks into that. And some say that uh, the ones into the uh, state witnesses were actually approved by the police. 
so there wasn't anything illegal there, but some of the other ones obviously were not. In fact, all of the other ones were not. Now, on further checking, uh, the government uh, or the police put out that only three people, uh, three people's phones were attempted to be hacked, and all three of those were allowed uh, by the, the judiciary. The police asked the judiciary, and they allowed it, and only one was successful. So if that's true, it obviously weakens the claims, but it has caused a massive scandal uh, in Israel. Uh, there's been calls for uh, uh, state investigations, um, and it has the potential, if some of these claims that the police basically uh, acted autonomously and hacked people's phones, uh, just whoever they decided, um, this certainly would create a massive, massive scandal. At the moment, it's unclear exactly who's right and who's not, um, but there is going to be a major investigation. It just depends on what level, if it's going to be a national investigation, if it's going to be a government investigation, who is going to be blamed. Obviously, the government at the moment takes some of the blame because they are the incumbent government, but it is clear that these hacking uh, generally happened under the previous government. Um, the major culprit who the, most of the fingers are pointing to is uh, the former uh, head of police, uh, commissioner of the police, Ali uh, al-Sheikh, who's no longer in the position. Uh, he's a former Shin Bet, uh, head of Shin Bet, or a senior uh, member of the Shin Bet. So some are saying, you know, it's, you know, uh, to appoint someone uh, who works in the Shin Bet and the police, what did you expect? He's going to use those sort of tactics. You know, there, there's all sorts of narratives that are swirling at the moment. If there is a major investigation, uh, a state investigation, probably a lot of fingers will be pointed at the previous um, uh, governments under uh, former Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu, even though uh, it's, uh, uh, at least one of the members of his family, it's been released that he was checked, at least by the media, that uh, obviously hasn't been conceded by the police or the government. Um, so they're running a narrative that the opposition led by Netanyahu although he's, he's not saying as much himself, but uh, members of his inner circle are claiming that this was obviously uh, rogue police investigations that are part of the whole conspiracy against the Netanyahu's, uh, and that's what led to the case, and this has to be checked, and obviously the police are investigations have been tainted and actually trying to delay his case. That's the narrative coming from the opposition, coming from the government is that it all happened under Netanyahu, that every single person involved, from the police commissioner, to the Minister of Internal Security were appointments by Netanyahu. And Netanyahu himself used some of these uh, uh, NSO, which is the company that's been appointed to, and it's Pegasus program, were used by Netanyahu, either some alleged personally or professionally, and even diplomatically, that some of these sort of um, gifts that were given to, um, to firm up the Abraham Accords were the, uh, to allow NSO to uh, provide the Pegasus program to some of those uh, countries involved in the Abraham Accord. So there's a lot of narratives. Uh, it has created a massive scandal uh, in Israel, and it remains to be seen exactly what the truth is. There's already been, as I said, preliminary checks, and the preliminary checks, according to the government, is that it wasn't 26 uh, phones, it was actually only three. All of them were allowed uh, by the uh, by, the judiciary, and only one was successfully hacked, and that was uh, one that was uh, allowed anyway. So that's uh, that's what's coming out at the moment. Running Al Sheikh for the first time after this broken for days 
uh, broke his silence and basically said that there's no truth to this. There's a lot of lies. There's a lot of rumors, but I acted completely within the, the law and, and did my job professionally. Uh, so that's the narrative that he's sticking with, but he's certainly the one that most people are blaming for this. Um, potentially, it could be a bit of an earthquake, depending on who knew, who knew what, who knew what when, and how much they allowed. Um, it's certainly some of the figures under the microscope will be the ministers of internal security over the last few years, because essentially they are the government ministers in charge of the police force. Uh, the most recent being uh, Amir Khanna of the Likud party before, Omer Barlev um, of the uh, Labour Party, who's the incumbent. So uh, we'll see what happens with this, um, but it certainly has the capability to, to uh, possibly end some careers, whether it's going to be at the political level, whether it's going to be at the police level, or we'll have to wait and see. Uh, so I'm happy to answer any questions on these subjects or anything else that's on your mind. Well, first off, David Levine would like to thank you for uh, your encouragement to take the trip to Israel. He said the COVID requirements were manageable and people were all very helpful. Uh, <laughs> second off, uh, Ken Miller asks, if this law actually specifies Palestinian, does this not create the de facto nationality of Palestinian people and creates a precedent? Well, it does. I, I... I haven't read the law itself, but there's a number of ways that you can, you can say residents of uh, Judea and Samaria, uh, non-Israeli residents of Judea and Samaria, you can say uh, citizens of the Palestinian Authority. I haven't read the actual law, but there's, it's, it, it doesn't, uh, it, Israel does not recognize a Palestinian state. It recognizes the Palestinian Authority, and it has done for, since 1993, uh, with the Oslo Accords. So, I don't think that, uh, that that's a, a relevant point because uh, it doesn't recognize a Palestinian state. And I, again, when I, when, I, when I use the word Palestinians, I'm not talking about the nationality, I'm talking about how they self-identify as a people. Thank you so much. An anonymous attendee asks, uh, could you comment about Mahmoud Abbas's promotion of two of his cronies? Uh, does this not indicate that the impasse between the Palestinian Authority and Israel will continue? Well, I, I, I don't see this as uh, necessarily relevant to uh, relations with Israel. This is very much internal Palestinian politics. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas is, is a weak figure in Palestinian society. Um, a lot of people see him as vulnerable politically. There's a reason why he hasn't had elections in, I've lost count, it's many, many years. And he's certainly gone well, well over his tenure, if not two or three times uh, beyond his tenure. Um, as, as president, he refuses to hold presidential, uh, parliamentary, or even uh, local elections. So it's clear that uh, he knows that he doesn't have the support of any. Uh, but what he has done is uh, try to shore up support uh, within the Palestinian Authority, within Fatah because there are those who see him as weak and because of his age and I, to a certain extent ill health, um, you know, there, there, there is going to be a, a bit of a battle uh, to succeed him. Uh, so at the moment he's trying to shore up support within uh, uh, his important uh, close circles. And also, you know, we've also got to look at the internal uh, uh, conflict in the Palestinian uh, areas uh, of Hamas and Fatah. So I think it's it's not really 
so relevant to, to the situation in Israel because Mahmoud Abbas will remain Mahmoud Abbas, you know, not uninterested, unwilling, perhaps even unable to move any sort of peace process forward, even disregarding the uh, the, 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 uh, what the Israeli reaction to that would be. So I think this is more about internal Palestinian politics than anything else. Thank you so much. And speaking of, uh, not speaking, I'm sorry. Uh, Mari Feldman asked, does uh, Safwat Frij have ties to the Muslim Brotherhood? Um, who, I, I have to say, I don't know. If you're talking about... Um, uh, the merits minister, Frij? Uh, I believe so. It says the Islamic movement's new leader, uh, oh, Sheikh in, in, Safwat Frij. Oh, I, I have to say, I don't know enough about him to make any statements. Okay. It's obviously not the merits minister, but who has actually had a stroke this week. Uh, um, but that's uh, obviously we're not talking about him. All right. Uh, Jeff Chef would like to know uh, what Israeli's reaction is to the controversial uh, Chinese Olympics going on, especially with their treatment of the Uyghurs. Uh, can you comment on that? Um, I can say very little because Israel's position is pretty much the same as most other countries in the world. There have been some outliers who have boycotted the opening ceremony uh, on a political level, but pretty much every nation on earth has sent a delegation Israel is not particularly strong Winter Olympics. I think everyone will understand why. Uh, you should send a delegation of a handful of people, no more. And they usually are in, <laughs> I don't think we've ever actually won a medal at the uh, Winter Olympics. Maybe I'm wrong, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, although we have a few Russian immigrants in figure skating who sometimes get in the top 10, uh, but I'm not sure if we've actually won a medal. But Israel's position on China in general is, you know, we, we are a small country. Uh, we don't necessarily have a real say in the massive global geopolitical uh, game, as it were. Obviously, uh, on most things, we, we side with the West, we side with the US. But as we've seen, even the US sent a delegation, uh, as did pretty much every country, sent a delegation. Uh, the US uh, boycotted the opening ceremony. I didn't hear of any Israeli representatives at the opening ceremony. That may not have been anything to do with politics. It may just be, uh, as I said, because Israel's not a, certainly not a major player at these uh, at those at the Winter Olympics, so that they don't, to the best of my knowledge, send a representative. So I'm not sure, uh, but certainly there was no news of any sort of political boycotts uh, in Israel. And out of the 190 odd countries in the world, only a very small handful uh, did make a, a statement, whether it was India, the US. I think a Scandinavian country or two, there was very, very few that actually did, um, but Israel certainly wasn't one of them. Thanks so much. Uh, Neville Pakroy asks, uh, or states, nothing this week compares with Biden's acquiescence to Iran, uh, $29 billion released in canceling the sanctions without uh, quid pro quo. Could you comment and state what actions we can take to support Israel? Well, it does seem that uh, we're closer and closer to um, re-entering the JCPOA or something uh, close to that, something similar. There was a phone call this week between President Biden and Prime Minister Bennett, which also lends credence to the idea that uh, we are getting closer. 
because they haven't spoken to each other in, in quite a while and there hasn't been that sort of a call. So probably it was a heads up, you know, uh, that would be my assumption to a certain extent that things are moving in that direction and probably the sanctions relief are in that, uh, you know, with that in mind. I mean, we can all see that the lead up to this was the fact that the more quote unquote hawkish elements of the American negotiating team quit and discussed, well, maybe discussed is my term, maybe discussed is a little bit uh, harsh, but uh, certainly disagreement with the position that the Americans taken. And those that were left on the negotiating team were, you know, far more dovish and far more uh, closer to returning to the to the JCPOA. So it does seem that the ingredients are there and the fact that the sanctions relief was there because Iran has been uh, calling for some time for that. And they probably made the argument to the Americans that we need something uh, to be able to go to our people and say, look, we gained uh, sanctions relief, whether it's limited or not, that's a whole debate, but certainly it showed a certain level of weakness. Uh, uh, in Israel, certainly Israel continues to be against the agreement. Uh, there's certainly a major difference in tone uh, between this government and the Netanyahu government just before the signing of the JCPOA. Uh, some say that uh, that doesn't help, doesn't help um, Israel's friends in America. Uh, some say, you know, it doesn't help the Republicans or even the more hawkish elements of the uh, Democratic Party to fight this, uh, as some stated that they will. Um, and even <coughs> some say it hasn't helped even the regional players uh, who, who, who like to, uh, for Israel to be seen as leading uh, the fight against the Iran deal, whereas they'll do more sort of behind the scenes. But what it has done, it has at least left Israel uh, in a place to discuss, you know, some maybe smaller matters uh, with America, because uh, previously under the JCPOA, when Netanyahu went to Congress over Obama's head, that was the moment where the Americans basically closed their ears and Israel had no um, influence whatsoever. Uh, you know, they, there's a big debate to be had. What is the best position to take, uh, uh, you know, as, as opposed to um, one, one over the other? That would be for historians to, to uh, you know, pull apart. Israel, uh, from Israel's point of view, uh, Bennett has stressed again and again, regardless of the deal, Israel still remains, um, you know, unbound by it. And if it believes it needs to take action, then it will do. Behind the scenes, it is clear that if an agreement uh, is returned to or a new agreement, then that does limit Israel's hand, as it did when the JCPOA was uh, signed, because it's much harder for an Israeli prime minister or an Israeli government or security cabinet to launch an attack uh, against Iran. I'm not saying it will happen, but it would be much harder uh, while there's an agreement between the, the P5 plus one and Iran, then if there isn't. Um, so it's definitely not what Israel wants. Uh, Israel is against a deal, and I'm sure whatever deal comes, that they will be against it. Uh, so it's certainly not a good position to be in, because as I said, it will limit uh, Israel's hand. But at this point in time, the Israeli government has decided not to publicly uh, go against the uh, President Biden and the administration. Thank you. Uh, Carrie Hillebrand asks, does Israel have a formal position regarding the Ukrainian-Russian crisis? And has there been a consequent uptick in Ukrainian aliyah? Um, there has been talk about uh, an uptick in Ukrainian aliyah, but it, to the best of my knowledge, hasn't happened. There 
there's always talks about preparing in case there is a war. At the moment, it's not happening. Um, if there is a war, then that's something different. Uh, there is talk this week that war is further away than it was in the last few weeks. It seems that uh, maybe there's, there's a pushback from that. Uh, what I personally think is, if there is going to be, it probably won't happen during the Olympics. Uh, so not to distract from China, because China and Russia now have better relations than they had before. Again, <laughs> you know, who, who knows? But um, but Israel's position, again, you know, on, you know when, when people ask Israel's position on China, Israel's position on Russia, Israel's position... Is, you know, people have to take into account that Israel is a tiny nation. Um, so it has to kind of, you know, try and always, you know, duck between the, the, the raindrops, as it were. Uh, Israel has good relations with both Russia and Ukraine. And, uh, you know, Foreign Minister Lapid has offered to mediate. Some in the opposition scoffed at that, but uh, the Ukrainian side at least did relate to, to that. Uh, Israel is obviously never going to be invited to mediate, you know, it doesn't play at that level. The French are there, the British are there, even the Americans are involved, but no one's going to invite the Israelis to mediate on such a, a global scale. Uh, so Israel uh, doesn't have a position publicly, uh, but I'm sure it would prefer not to have a war, as most of the world would. Um, and it does seem at this point that we're a little bit further away. But so far, to the best of my knowledge, the Russian troops have, are still there. And according to American uh, reports, they are 70%, uh, they have 70% capacity of what they need to, to mount a full and serious uh, ground invasion of the Ukraine. But the reports over the last few days, including from Ukraine itself, are that they expect war is not as imminent as they felt it was days or weeks ago. All right, thank you. And in our last minute here, an anonymous attendee asks, uh, who is on the list to replace Mandelblit? Well, um, he's actually now been replaced this week. And I'm embarrassed to say I've forgotten her name. She is, what's most important about her uh, is that she's from outside of the criminal uh, justice system. Uh, some say that that's her greatest advantage because she'll be coming with a blank uh, slate, especially and maybe this was even in mind because of this NSO scandal, which again could point fingers even at people uh, inside the judiciary, how much people in the judiciary knew about it. So with that in mind, perhaps she was the perfect candidate because there obviously be no fingers pointed at her. She is someone outside, as I said, of the system and she comes with a blank slate and probably that's the most important uh, uh, thing that she brings to the table. She is very experienced, obviously, just not necessarily in the criminal prosecution. Um, but uh, the big question which a lot of people will be asking is where she stands on Netanyahu and that remains to be seen because as I've said uh, over the last couple of webinars it will probably take her weeks if not months to go through all the all the state of play where we are in the investigation well beyond the investigation of the trial uh, before she even uh, arrives at an opinion of whether there is a possibility of putting a plea bargain, not necessarily the one that Mandelblit talked about, but a plea bargain back on the table. But I'm sure we'll hear more about those, but not probably for weeks and maybe even months. Yep, I'm sure you'll keep us well, well informed on that one. Uh, so we've come to the close of our webinar and podcast. Ashley, thank you so much for taking time to update us thank this you. week. Uh, for our viewers and listeners, please join us Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern for a webinar with Raymond Ibrahim. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.